0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today, to end our season, we're going to do a show about the beginning of the Christmas season, and the beginning of the Christmas season is always marked by Christmas songs. Now, these are the things that really get us into the mood for the Christmas, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, they get you into that wintry, seasonal mood. And you know, when, it, when you really think about it, what do you know about these famous songs? These songs that really bring us to a different time and place, what do we know about them? Well, not much. That's the case. But that's not going to be the case after this episode because I've got Ace Collins here, and we're going to talk about the stories, the history, the lessons behind your favorite Christmas songs. And he's written several books on the topic, so he is the expert. He's the guy to go to. And I'm going to go to him right now because I want to get right into this. Ace, thank you so much for being on the show today. First of all, Ace, i got to ask you a question because you have one of the coolest names of all time So did your parents think that you were going to be a a gunslinger or a fighter pilot? Did they name you Ace, or is that a nickname? It was a nickname I got in college. When I went
1: to Baylor University, there were four Andrew Collinses at Baylor. They gave us all nicknames. I won a hearts tournament. Playing the Ace of Hearts on a run, and so that's how. It happened. <laughs> so it was. It was card playing. It was you were doing the card. Well, and ironically enough, I had the same name in high school. Ace. They called me that, but it was because I was a long range shooter on the basketball team.
0: Oh wow! Oh, you were. And, and so at I,
1: I went to I went to college thinking I would escape it
0: and be Andy, and couldn't <laughs> pull it off. <laughs> It's, I went back to being Ace again for a different reason, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a great name. I mean, you honestly, you cannot get any better than Ace. I mean, it's, you yeah. know... Well, if you're a, if you're a writer, cool. the best reporter is an Ace reporter. So, I mean, you know, that's that works Boom. well. Yeah, exactly. No, I love it. And, you know, you've written... I mean, you're an author, obviously. You've written over... Is it 100 books now? That when I was looking, the last count was around 100.
1: Uh, the 100th one just came out about three, four weeks ago. The And, and we've got oh, wow. two more that are scheduled for next year. So, I mean, yeah. Is a finished?
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, you know, it's funny. I was looking at that, and and it turns out Stephen King to me is the most prolific writer of all time. I mean, that guy puts out you know a three thousand page book every six months. He's only written sixty three. Now I don't know what your I don't know what your page count is, but you're like you know you're lapping King. Oh, but it, yeah, you look at his word count.
1: He he's going to beat me on word count. I mean, you know, that guy can actually turn out the, the verbiage. You know, and he writes just for. the... You know, he's got enough money now. He writes for love. You know, I, what I amount to is, you know, I write to pay bills. So, you know, <laughs> somebody asked me once if I got writer's block. If you, you know, if you have to pay a bill that month, you don't get writer's block. You know, writer's right. block is wasted on fixed. I, I interviewed Willie Nelson one time and he hadn't written a hit song in years. And I said, Willie, you know, why haven't you written a hit song? And he said, I ain't hungry. <laughs> and you know i think to a large right. degree yeah. motivation deals with with
0: just the necessities of life so yeah sure no, it's true. And you know, I love that because, you know, speaking of the necessities of life, you know, obviously we need we need air, we need water, and we need food. And there's one man who's always chasing after food but never seems to catch it, and that's Wiley Coyote, one of my favorite characters of all time. You know, on my other podcast, I use him as an example of different scientific theories. And you mention him in your book. I love this. You have a quote. I'm sorry, it's on your website, a quote no. from Wiley Coyote, which is authors must have a po- must have the positive characteristics found in Wiley coyote imagination, desire, and a never give up attitude in the face of constant rejection. Being on the Acme products mailing list doesn't hurt either. <laughs> well, no. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I
1: mean realistically speaking the the you know the story is the best-loved songs of Christmas sold over a million copies. It is the best-selling book I've ever had. It earned me the title best-selling author. But it was rejected 27 times, you know, wow. over a span of 10 years. So you have to have a thick skin. I tell this to college classes all the time to do this because you've got to connect with the person who actually sees the vision in your work. And therefore, writing is really a wee project Mm -hmm, because one, yes, you write the words, but you've got to have a good publicity team. You've got to have somebody who designs the covers. You've got to have a great editor. All of those people come together to ultimately make books that are successes or books that fail. Right. And I've been fortunate in several instances to
0: have just the right team to come together at the right time. Right. That's great. I mean, that's what you want. I mean, you know, look, it's it successes. It was 80%, you know, my 5% inspiration. Luck's involved in there. somewhere. I don't know the exact calculation here, Ace. It's, it's, it's escaped me now. But a lot of luck is involved. You make your own luck. And I think in some ways by being prepared and, you know, finding the right person, that's what equals success. And you've definitely done it. And I want to get it. I can't wait to talk about the favorite uh, Christmas story, uh, Christmas uh, songs of all time. I've got a whole list here. You've got some great stories. But I want to get talked about you just a little bit longer because a couple two other interesting things about you that I wanted to discuss. Number one, uh, you like Wurlitzer jukeboxes? I've got two. Yeah, I've got. I've got
1: in our diner we have a we have a room in our house that looks like a nineteen sixties diner. I mean, oh, I complete love it. with soda bar and all that booths yeah. and everything else. It's got a 1957 Horlitzer jukebox. Right now, by the way, all 100 records on that jukebox are Christmas music. Wow. And so I turn it over to Christmas music during this time of the year. Uh, off to my right, you can't, uh, left, you can't see it, is a 1961 Wurlitzer jukebox in my office that is right now stacked with country music.
0: Uh, <laughs> it varies
1: from time to time as well, too. You know, um, sure. you know, music of pain and suffering, uh, you know. And, and so, yeah, I love that. I, I like I don't want to live in the past. I mean, realistically speaking, I don't want to go back to a Jim Crow era. I don't want to go back to a time when when doors were not as open as they are now for people because I have friends of all all races, religions, creeds, and I just want to have that openness that I have in my house stay there. By the same token, I do love a lot of the style a lot of the, uh, ambience, if you will, of the past. So I want to celebrate the things that are positive in that. And, and, but I don't want to go back and live. Plus in particular, I don't want to live at a time when there's not air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I couldn't in the South where I live, boy, summertime, I don't understand how people survived, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago in this. So, right. yeah.
0: No, it's true. You know, I mean, nostalgia is one of those things, you know, people like it. They like to think about the past. But in truth, you know, there's good and bad. And I think when people think in in nostalgic terms, they want the good and they forget about the bad. But you're right. You know, who wants a Jim Crow era, obviously? We always look at the past through rose-colored glasses. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the other things, you know, you're also a classic car owner. I owned a a 1950 Plymouth for a long time. It was a little outside my ability as far as mechanics go. But um, do you— Restore them? Do you tinker around in those as well? I tinker around.
1: I don't touch paint and bodywork. I can redo interiors. I can redo things like that. That stuff, you know, other than just basic maintenance, that stuff's out of my realm. I've got a 1934 Auburn 652Y sedan. Oh, wow. Uh, It it is original. I mean, it's got original paint and original interior. So it's a survivor. It looks great from 15 feet away. If you get up close, you see all the spider cracking on the paint and things like that. But I think that gives it a certain, uh, you know, a certain interesting historical view when you see it not restored i actually have people who who restore that car who come up and take pictures of mine just to find out what screw to use in certain places because theirs has been restored and they don't know what screw to use and what (laughs) you know and things like that i have a 1965 mustang fastback oh wow that i've had for 30 years and i drive it four or five times a week it is my i you know i i have all these i have not the normal modern cars in the driveway, and I ignore them and drive the '65 Mustang. I just love. <laughs> Who wouldn't? You know, it's, you know I, every time I get into it, I feel like I'm time tripping. You know, you, you just there's something about it that going down the road, and you're still driving that car.
0: Yeah. No, you know, my, absolutely.
1: My wife's 2015 Mustang convertible. Great car. I mean, it's a fabulous car. I love to take it on road trips, but. It has a lot of driving itself. You know, it breaks. It actually even adjusts the cruise control. I don't have cruise control. I don't have an AM/FM radio. I just have the basics in that car, and I just love that driving that
0: '65 Mustang. You know, no, so. I I love that. You now I think that's a perfect place to say this. You know, when it comes to transporting yourself into the past or, or into any specific time period, not necessarily the past, but we're going to talk a little bit about the past. Nothing does that like Christmas music. And here in America, you know, right after... After the 4th of July, we start to hear Christmas music on the radio. And, you know, we know that there's just a mere five months until Christmas. Uh, But, you know, nothing takes us there quite like that. And, you know, one of the things I was reading your book, and you do a great job, you know, because Christmas is obviously a religious holiday. But it's you know thanks to the commercialization and capitalism at its you know at its greatest point uh, you know it's there's a secular holiday as well you got to sell presents to everybody Ace you know everyone knows that and one of the things that's kind of cool when you look at Christmas songs I I don't know if people break this down but I was looking you know at your book and the divide is really you know you got Christmas songs that focus on Christ Christmas and the religious religious aspect you've got secular songs that kind of focus on the myths surrounding Christmas you know you got your Saint Nick your Santa Claus stuff like that. Then you got other songs that are kind of like in-betweeners that really focus on either the pagan ritual part of it that's kind of non-religious anymore, really. I mean, I guess if you were back 3,000 years ago, it would mean something. Um, but, you know, like Christmas trees, snow, the winter season, uh, you know, things like that. There's, I don't know how you break them up, but this is kind of what I saw when I, was, when I was reading your books.
1: Well, I think you also look at the fact, too, is you have songs that weren't meant for Christmas that become Christmas songs. A classic example was the Winter Wonderland. Yep. You know, yep. That, that the classic song, Let There Be Peace on Earth was not meant as a Christmas song that has now become a part of the Christmas season. I, I think the best example of that was written in eighteen forty in Medford, Massachusetts, when a preacher's son, who was a college kid, was was given the assignment to write a song for Medford's Thanksgiving. Yeah, <laughs> uh, pageant, and he yeah. he couldn't come up with any inspiration to write a Thanksgiving song at all, and so he went outside his the little place that had the piano where he was working and saw these kids, uh, teenagers, if you will, with these horse-drawn sleighs. And they were racing each other, literally drag racing mm-hmm. their horses out there to impress <laughs> to impress girls, okay? Right. Yeah, they were yeah. doing it to impress girls. I mean, yeah. you know, it was so typical. And he went back inside, <laughs> and he wrote this song. And they this children's choir sang it at Thanksgiving. And they had such a great response. They went ahead and sang it at Christmas again. Wow, okay. And at Christmas, these people from Boston and New York had come to watch this Christmas celebration, and they took the song back to those two places as a Christmas song. It eventually was actually published in Savannah, Georgia, and spread across the country after that. But all of our imagery of Christmas, the stuff that Courier and I have created, the stuff that's on Christmas cards, the stuff that Hollywood features in movies, the stuff that is on 742 different Hallmark movies right now today. Yeah. was started by this song. Okay, and this song is a Thanksgiving song, and it's Jingle Bells. And so (laughs) Jingle Bells is really, if you listen to it, an 1840s Jan and Dean or the Beach Boys song, because it's about kids drag racing to impress girls. I mean, you know, you think about it, and it has set in motion what this Christmas is supposed to be, not just here in the United States, but all over the planet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's not too me think about it because you know I'm, I'm pulling it up now yeah it was I love that it was on Thanksgiving and this isn't the only one I'm gonna mention another one a controversial song we're gonna to get to in a second um but I love that and if I'm if I'm remembering your the the, uh, the history quickly um so uh it was written by James Pierre yeah. yeah. So he had this, I think he had to come up with a song for for his, his church. He goes, watches all the stuff. He goes to Mrs. Waterman's house. So there's only one lady in town who's got a piano. So oh,
1: Mystic Lane, by the way, on oh, Mystic uh, Lane, Mystic Lane. <laughs> <as a girl. laughs> yeah. Yeah. lest
0: we forget. Right. And so she said, you have a merry little jingle here. Um, And I think he originally called it One Horse Open Sleigh and had an arrangement for the choir. And then that, I think, how did it get the Jingle Bells name? Because obviously, you know, Jingle, you know, you got Mrs. Waterman involved here. Does she get any rights to this? Does she get any, you know, any kick? Does the Waterman, the Waterman uh, estate doesn't get much on this?
1: No, 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 no. By now, nobody does because it's public domain. But, you know, it's a situation where... You know, I don't think anybody envisioned it going beyond that point. What is really interesting, too, is that there were two writers later on that came along and wrote the rock and roll version of this, which was um, uh, Jingle Bell Rock. Uh, You know, And and Jingle Bell Rock was kind of inspired by Jingle Bells, let's face it. And these two guys uh, were actually in New Orleans when they wrote the song. They were both from New England. And they thought they had written a wonderful song about the experience of riding in a sleigh. Hmm. Then Bobby Helms released it as he c- recorded it as a country song, released it. It became this huge rock and roll hit and everybody thinks it's about a dance. <laughs> and, and so the jingle Bell rock became about a dance. They wrote it before rock and roll. The rock was the rocking of the sleigh is what it was. Oh, wow. So, oh, that's interesting. So, so you have two different songs. About jingle bells that are both kind of misinterpreted today, but what they originally were written for. But yeah. the two guys, the two guys who wrote the song "Jingle Bell Rock," they were so disappointed when it became a rock and roll song because they were talking about riding in a sleigh. But when the royalty checks started coming in off off the big hit, right. suddenly they minded it at all. You yeah, know they st- it was just like, <laughs> but it was just like, what happened here? This is a song about writing. and if you listen to it, it is a song about riding in a sleigh. It's not a song about, you know,
0: about dancing to rock and roll music. Yeah, I love that when the when the checks start coming in, Ace, that's when people kind of change their tune. No pun intended. or um, well, you know, one quick thing I want to tie up on Jingle Bells, which I love, is that you know it's a song about dating and betting. You write in your book, which isn't really yes, appropriate is. for church, uh, but they sang it anyway. And then it became really the first viral hit because people just started singing it and they loved it from the. And then it became associated with Christmas. I think he moved to Virginia in 1857, and that's when they started. Pre- You know that's when they started getting little. You know, but
1: that was about the time too that America really started celebrating Christmas, right? Because if you look at it, you know, Congress met on Christmas Day until the eighteen forties. It was not a holiday. The only it was a holiday in the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church. Everybody else ignored it because it was kind of Mardi Gras on steroids. People drank and got got drunk and passed out on Christmas Day. That was the old. That came from the old English tradition of doing that and and that. So when a when a, a pastor wrote for his kids about an Eastern European. Uh, Christmas and wrote a poem called Visit from Saint Nick, which we now as know as the night before Christmas. That changed things for American Christmases because that was published in newspapers and stores started picking up on the fact if we can change this into a focus on Christmas holiday, on uh, children holiday, then we can sell some merchandise. Right. So Santa became, we Santa became a thing. So if, in a way, yeah. Santa saved Christmas for a lot of christians because it opened the doors of churches because people quit drinking and partying at christmas and they started focusing on the children and that made it a more peaceful holiday in the united states which by the time of the civil war now you're opening it up for churches to actually have christmas celebrations they right. made it a holiday they quit meeting on on congress quit, quit meeting on christmas day and suddenly the focus was on kids and that literally saved Christmas. Well,
0: yeah. you got you got to move merch, right? And that's number one. But number two, you know, they didn't. People didn't stop partying and getting debauch on Christmas. They're Ace people still do that. But they added the kid element, and then they added the religious element. The streets became safe. If you go back to the old English uh, song, "We Wish You a Merry Christmas,"
1: we sing it all the time now. You know, but there is a line in there: "We won't leave until we get some." Mm-hmm. And they were talking about figgy pudding in the song. Well, the, the the in America, in the United States, drunken bands of men used to roam through the cities and sing that song outside the houses of wealthy people. Yeah, they and they put they put in there exactly what they wanted: be it money, be it ale, be it whatever. Right. And we won't leave until we get some. So police departments were doubled and tripled on Christmas, on Christmas Day, because of the violence of that. So you you actually, if you read between the lines of. We wish you a Merry Christmas.
0: It's a totally different meaning now than it was then. Yeah, you know that it, it's great because in your, it, you know, this was the first song I wanted to talk about because reading this changed my entire view on Christmas completely. Because you know, you mentioned this. Yeah, there's basically these traveling ba- ba- bards or troubadours or criminals, I guess, uh, running around. You know, making a living by you know caroling and getting paid for it. But you said, you know, in the book, you say Christmas was kind of like Mardi Gras. I'm assuming without the beads. That'd be a little much for, you know, six. Uh, yeah, Mardi Gras. I, I actually refer to it as Mardi Gras on steroids when I talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's wild. Yeah. I I mean, it's nuts. I I didn't know that at all. I didn't know that English speaking countries, I mean, I think it was actually, it was like trick or treat. You know, it was kind of like in Halloween where, you know, these bands are going up to these houses. They're saying, look, we want figgy pudding. We want it right now. And we're not going to leave till we get some, we sing it like it's fun, but they were serious. Ace.
1: Yeah. And realistically speaking, they probably were not asking for figgy pudding. They were asking for money or beer (laughs) or ale.
0: You know, that's what they were asking for. Uh,
1: and it was, and the reason for that, by the way, is very simple. Uh, uh, In 330 A.D. or 329, the church decided that Christmas Day was going to be on December 25th. Church leaders did. And they did that because all of these young, these Christians in the first three centuries were partying on December 25th because that was a winter solstice celebration. And that was part of Roman culture. They thought by putting Christmas there, they would change the impact of it. They didn't. What it did was they still partied But it was Christmas Day as well as the winter solstice. The only place that didn't happen was (laughs) Eastern Europe, where they weren't connected to the Roman Empire, and therefore Christmas became a very very religious holiday and with a focus on children and other things. And so you had those two Christmases really operating independently of each other for, for centuries. In England, Oliver Cromwell, when he took over the crown, actually outlawed Christmas because it was such a violent holiday. And so, and so wow. that was the first. That was the first thing he did when he overthrew the crown, and and one of the reasons he got overthrown were later was people were not crazy about losing Christmas. You know, they still wanted to party on Christmas. Sure. What changed it? What changed sure. it in England? <laughs> really, what changed the whole focus yeah. of in England was when Victoria married Prince Albert from Germany. He brought the German traditions to England, and then you had the visit from Saint Nick here about the German traditions in uh, that was written. Uh, in uh in the United States and those two things really started putting the the, the giving us that Victorian Christmas that we we think of in treasure so if you Want an old-fashioned Christmas? You don't want to go back more than about a 60 years, because the Christmas before that was not something you would recognize. <laughs>
0: right. Well, you know, it's it, it, uh, you know we're alluding to our our nostalgia conversation we had earlier, where things were not quite a little different back then. But I love that people were upset because they it was getting rid of a party holiday, not that it was we're getting rid of this religious holiday that we care so well, much about. Well, and another thing that's, that another that's thing so that modern
1: Christians get upset about is Xmas. You know, and I. You know, I, I I do devotional books. I, I I talk about Christmas all the time, but Xmas was actually how you spelled Christmas in the church for the first thousand years because ink was expensive, paper was expensive. Whenever they got a chance to shorten anything, it was like texting, and X was the first sure. letter. The X, sure. X was the first letter in Christ's name. Mass meant worship, worship Christ. Hence, you go back to the early apostles. You, you they saw Xmas written in a store, they would say, "Great." This is wonderful. This is I recognize this, you know. And so and so people who in modern world the Christians who get upset with that don't realize that was a part of Christian history as well, too. So when you when you find out the background of these things, a lot of things that make people upset just aren't important. I've got all my grandmother's Christmas cards from the 30s and 40s and 50s. Very few of them say Merry Christmas. They say happy holidays, yuletide greetings, seasons greetings. And they do that because cards back then were written in such a way to cover Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. You didn't get you, you didn't yep. pick up the phone and call people on those various days. And, and so right,
0: right, Really right, yeah.
1: We've made a, an awful lot about nothing in this country when it comes to saying, well, you got to say <laughs> this, you got to say that. Well nobody ever said that or this. They all had all these different things they said and it depended on their personality and it had nothing to do with their faith or lack thereof. And that's one of the things I find that's most interesting. You know, you talked about we were talking about earlier about timing. You know, and and getting a, landing a book is timing and luck. Having a, you think about the tens of thousands of Christmas songs that have been written, and yet we've only got probably less than a hundred that we really, you know, are classics, if we will, songs we listen to. Sure. That includes yep. both secular and sacred songs. Uh, why? I think timing is everything. Uh, if you go back. 80 years this year. You go back to December 24th in 1941, just three weeks after Pearl Harbor. Bing Crosby was was putting together a radio show for that night. And you can imagine the mood of the of the country. I mean, it was a time of of great, not just angst, but people were worried. I mean, they were people were joining the service. They were going overseas. We didn't know if we were going to win or lose. We didn't know who was going to come back. And Crosby had been given this song by Irving Berlin, and Berlin had written it for the movie Holiday Inn, and they were going to start filming it in 1942, and it was going to be released the summer of 1942, ironically. And Crosby had listened to all the music, and Irving Berlin actually told Crosby when he got to the last song, which was the Christmas song that was put in there, he said, I like all my other music I wrote on this, this one's not very good. And I, I, I will right. get something okay. better for you. But here's what I've got right now. And Bing told him, he said, "Don't change a thing. This is a wonderful song." Well, Bing wasn't hadn't recorded it. He wasn't planning on recording it until 1942. But because of World War II, he sang it on his on his network radio show that night, and the phone lines just lit up. And if you think about it, there is nothing religious at all about White Christmas. But on December 24th, 1941, that song, if you if you think about what it went meant to America was a secular prayer. It meant so much to these people to have this imagery of what Christmas was supposed to be, and it gave them something to cling to. Two years later, when he released the song that was actually inspired by a college kid writing home to his girlfriend, and that's, I'll Be Home for Christmas, you know, assuring her he was going to come back from college and they were going to be together again, I'll Be Home for Christmas is 12 lines. But if you listen to I'll Be Home for Christmas it is incredibly meaningful because in 1943 people were so separated at Christmas, be not just people overseas. There were people who left their homes to work in munitions plants and, and, and building airplanes and things like that. So it was a very divided country. There were a lot of empty places at the table at, at Christmas. And, and so once again, not a religious song, but if you listen to it, it's a very secular prayer. It's a, it's a, it's a hope that things will be restored to normal. And then, the other great war, World War II, hit was Judy Garland's "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" from the movie "Meet Me in St. Louis," and, and and it was a song that was a real downer when it was originally written. It was written as a song that caught the emotion of the of the of the movie because Judy was about to leave the the little the boy she loved and move to a different city. She didn't know she'd ever see him again, and there was a line in there about you know, uh, this may be Christmas last, next year we may be living in the past. She refused to record that because of what was going on overseas, and they had to write it to give it a more upbeat mood. And that became her most requested song when she entertained the troops in World War II. I'm not sure any of those three songs would have come to mean what they did in the overall span of Christmas music if they hadn't been released during World War II. It was the timing of when they were released, that I think has made them such a rich part of history. And you said something brilliant to begin this broad- broadcast. By the way,
0: it happens, Ace. It happens a lot. Don't be surprised. Don't sound so surprised. No, and, and it's, uh, it is something I talk about all the time. You talk about what Christmas
1: music means. It is the only kind of music that we come back that we have that comes back and visits, uh, vis- revisits us every year. And therefore, mm-hmm, right. when we listen to a Christmas song, there's always a Christmas song somewhere that means something to us. We listen to it, and suddenly we remember a grandparent or our parent, and they're very much alive. We suddenly are not the age we are. We're suddenly little children looking at something that was magical that happened at the holiday. Sure. There is no other type of music that does that for us. It literally is a time machine that doesn't just make us remember that moment, but it returns to our senses, the smells, the sounds, and we see people who are dead who are very much alive again we see them as they were and we see ourselves as i were as we were and so therefore christmas music is really a time machine that restores to us the ability for a little while to treasure moments from the past in, in multi dimensional ways rather than just flat memories.
0: I mean, I think that's exactly true because I can think of, you know, one of this, this is going to sound silly, but, you know, what kind of does that for me is this song called Snoopy's yeah. Christmas, which is the, uh, written by the Royal Guardsman. And I can remember. It's on my jukebox right now. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> as, well, thank God for that. <laughs> All right. We, we agree on something. Um, so, you know, and I think that that song, I can remember being. Four or five years old, and I had a record player, a small little record player, it had a blue lid on it. And, you know, it's the same. All these memories coming back. Mine was red. Yeah, but it's you know, it's it's this small little record player, and I had the and it had the um the record had the big I don't know what they were called. They had the big knot in the middle of it.
1: The forty five hole, yeah, the forty five hole.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you put it on, and I remember just listening to that little crackle sound at the beginning. And as the as that whole song starts out, and it's the weirdest song, you know, for those who don't know, uh, I'm gonna put all the songs we're talking about on on the website. Um, But it's a song about Snoopy in World War One, you know, funny enough. And he gets, you know, basically he's taking out the Red Baron, and anyone who's a Peanuts fan knows that Snoopy's arch nemesis is the Red Baron. And so he's fighting him, and as they're about to, you know, basically the Red Baron's got him dead to rights and can shoot him down. And instead of shooting him down, he says, Merry Christmas, my friend. Merry, and Merry it's the silly to song. into all, all a good
1: night. He actually mimics the line, but he says it with a German accent. You know, you know, you, you, I mean, right, it's just like, right. you know, we're a Christmas story. And you know, that, you know like, he's, like he's in a plane way away. And, and really, yeah, right. you listen to it. And, and and that was probably made as much as anything else because of the popularity of the of the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas special that still runs to this day. Uh, and once again, let's go back to the time machine. Isn't it amazing if you think about it that Christmas music also does something else that's very hard to do, and that's that is um, unites unites generations. When when in my jukebox, I have college kids. My wife is a college professor, and we have we feed between forty and sixty college kids on Sunday night at our house every every week. Well, when they come in and play the jukebox, they play. Bing Crosby's White Christmas. They want to hear Bing Crosby's White Christmas. They want to hear Elvis Presley's right. Blue Christmas. They want to hear right. the yep. songs. Yes, their Mariah Carey has you know has the monster hit of this generation with all I want for Christmas is you. but they're also listening to the same music their grandparents listen to and, and that's another fa- facet about Christmas music that I don't think exists in any other kind of music. Uh, it it, it crosses generational lines better. It builds those bridges better than any other kind of music.
0: Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to get to, um, because you mentioned before about how Christmas was outlawed, um, and we're talking about the time machine. One of the songs that, I didn't even know I was going to, that I wanted to talk about, well, we got to fit this in, but this is the 12 days of Christmas because this is, I've always wondered what it meant. It seems like this nonsense song. One of the things I always liked about it is I could almost remember probably like 10 out of the 12 things that you would say. Once you get past eight, things start to get a little fuzzy for me. But not anymore, Ace, because you know I grew up Catholic, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know a lot of this stuff meant to me. But in brief, and I'll let you go into detail here. But in brief, that song was basically a, a hidden prayer or, or hidden lessons of the Christian faith because it was outlawed yes. in England. You could only or you could only you, know, you could only worship in the Church of England, and so a lot of the symbolism, the Catholic symbolism, was embedded into the song. So each one of those numbers means something totally different. You know, it's hiding in plain sight, and I, I loved it. I mean, it was crazy. And, and the debate is:
1: was the song written nonsensical, and the Catholics adopted it and re and 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 looked at those various symbols and made them into a code song, or was it written by a Catholic as a code song? We don't know that. I kind of think it was written as a code song, but I can't prove that. So I, you know, I don't know which which right. came first here. But I will tell you this: <laughs> sure, you know, you go back sure. through, and each one of those has a meaning. Partridge in a pear tree. Why? Is there a partridge in a pear tree? The, the partridge is the only bird that will lay down its life for its nest. Hence, that represents Jesus Christ. You look at the two, that's Old and New Testament. You look at the, the three, you know, you just go through the thing. The thing I love the best, ten lords a leaping. What's that? That's the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Those are the laws. The lords right. had the laws. You know, the, the, the 11 right. <laughs> is the 11 disciples that went out. Then when somebody said, well, well, there's 12 disciples. No, Judas, Judas opted out. You know, so there were just 11 that took the word out. So, you know, uh, that the, and and so you each one of those has a particular tie to biblical references, and the Catholics used it in England. As you said, the Catholic Church was outlawed at that particular point. You could be drawn and quartered for teaching the Catholic faith in England at that yeah. time.
0: Yeah, that was nuts. And, and, and so, <laughs> that was crazy. You know, and, and so what happened is that they Jeez. used
1: this song, once again— to, show, to t- teach their children the important elements of faith in the Catholic Church. And it applies, if you read the elements of faith, it applies to anybody who is a Christian, you can go back through and find it. By the way, the 12th is the Apostles' Creed, which you can, we can go on. Uh, many, many Catholics can re- recite verbatim, uh, but not nearly as many uh, Protestants can. But it, it is a classic example of a song that has both a secular and a Christian meaning, depending on who you are. And, and that's something I, I love. You know, it's kind of like I mentioned early on, I mentioned off the air, I guess, with you, I, God rest you, merry gentlemen. I always thought that was an interesting song. Why would God want happy people to sleep was my reference as a kid. You know, if you think about it. And I found out <laughs> yeah. during the research, yeah. it was written like most carols were by peasants. You know, you have two different kinds of carols. You have carols that were written by, by Catholics, monks usually, uh, because the Catholic Church was celebrating Christmas. And then you have the carols that were written by English and other people who— Whose churches were not celebrating Christmas, so they had to write their own, and theirs are usually theologically incorrect. They have the wise men and the shepherds arriving at the same time. They have, they have everybody following right. stars. Sure. They have all this other stuff, you know. It, it's not, But God rest you, merry gentlemen. The word "rest" in old England meant make or keep. So God. Mm. So suddenly, if you sing it, okay. God make you merry. It takes on a brand new meaning. But Robin Hood and his merry men. Merry old England, well back, and by the way, if I do the, one of the questions I get on the BBC all the time is why do we say happy Christmas and y'all say merry Christmas? The reason is probably goes back five, six, seven hundred years when Mary had multiple meanings. And yes, it meant happy, but it also meant if you were happy back then in old England, you had money, you had power, you had prestige. In words, if you otherwise, if you were a serf, you were pretty miserable. I mean, you know, literally speaking, <laughs> you didn't have any hope of ever escaping yeah, yeah. that. You know, it's not that you couldn't find some moments sure. of happiness, but eat, drink, and be merry. In general, eat, drink and yeah, be powerful, be mighty. You know, merry old England was the most powerful country in the world. Robin Hood and his merry men—they weren't happy because they were out in the wet forest. They were happy because they were trying to overthrow the crown. You know, they—they they were. But, right. but it was Mary meant mighty it was robin hood and his mighty men so we should be singing god rest you mary gentlemen probably this way god make you mighty gentlemen
0: oh interesting suddenly the song takes on a whole new meaning if you sing it that way yeah well and it, a lot of these you know i don't think i'm ever going to look at christmas songs the same way after reading your books uh, because the other one you know in along that same vein is carol of the bells i mean i love this song you know bam banana pa pa what i th- what i think is so funny about that song is it's to me it's so serious it's you know it's it's these kind of these bells going and it's got this big crescendo and it's like bah, bah, da, bah, bah. you know no one ever no one ever low keys this song right it's always they always take it to the extreme and you know what i realized after reading your book is that of course it's going to be written that way because it's telling this you know the story that when jesus was born every bell in the world went off at the same time and this is kind of you know story that was told i think in germany yeah. uh i believe russian, or in, it in right? russian it, as well. Well, Russian, yeah, German. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And that part of, the, you know, Eastern Europe, and, and that's, it's telling that story. And so, of course, it's going to be big and powerful, you know? It
1: is. Well, if you've got every bell going off, that's 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 a major headache right there. Yeah, I mean Yeah. Uh, right. and, you know, And that's one of the legends that, of course, it didn't happen. They didn't use bells much for starters 2,000 years ago. I mean, you know, so that's probably not going to happen. Uh, but- it, it was a wonderful legend. Somebody, somebody wrote about it. It was kind of lost. Nobody sang it much until NBC Radio put it on, put an arrangement on, the, on about 60, 70 years ago. And suddenly it took off in the United States because of this NBC Orchestra wow. arrangement of it. And if you think about it, we owe radio, really most of the music that we listen to and we, and we keep up with is owed to us by the experience of radio. The very first song ever played yep, on the radio, yep. by the way, was Oh Holy Night. Oh. And here's the story behind it. I it's fascinating. O Holy Night, oh. written, in, written in the 1840s uh, by a man in France whose local parish priest said, hey, I need you to write a poem for the Christmas Eve Mass. This guy, okay. on, a, on a trip to Paris, writes the poem. He is so impressed with what he wrote, he took it to a friend of his who writes opera music. The friend sat there and said, nah, I really can't write music for this. He said, I'm not qualified. And he said, no, he this guy must have owed him because he put the pressure on and he got, the, got it back. They sang it in the church that Christmas Eve. And, and within a few years, it had gone all over France as the most most popular carol in France. And then the Catholic church found out that the, the guy who had written the music was Jewish. And so they kicked it out of the church for being secular because it had been written by Jew. Okay? I mean, you know, you, you just think, look, look at the words and you're going, yeah. you're kicking this out. Well, it was brought to America, not as a Christmas song, but by the abolitionist movement. Because the third verse said, uh, all slaves are our brother in, in whose name all oppression shall cease. So it was to release the chains. Chains are even in there, you know, in that verse. And so it was after Christmas Excuse me, it was after the Civil War that it became a Christmas song in the United States. And then the Fran- the f- people in France had continued to sing it, even if the church wouldn't let it in. And during the Franco-Prussian War, a man had jumped out of a foxhole. You hear this song about Silent Night all the time in World War II. But he jumped out of a foxhole and started singing a Holy Night. The two sides got together at Christmas, and it really did bring peace on earth. Then we moved to 1906, <laughs> when a man named Fessenden had been told, You can't do this. It's impossible. And yet he invented... And by the way, if y'all watch Murdoch Mysteries from Canada, that that great show up there that's been on for 15 years, they actually, Fessenden actually makes appearances in fictional form on that show from time to time. But Fessenden Fessenden from Pittsburgh uh, had studied with Marconi. Marconi had told him, and Alexander Graham Mellon told him, you can't build a transmitter powerful enough to transmit the human voice. This guy did that. And on Christmas Eve, 1906, he starts reading the second chapter of luke at the same time that people in news offices and on ships at sea and in railroad stations are listening for morse code mm. and here here over this wireless over these things they hear this guy's voice now it wasn't very
0: clear wow. yeah
1: then the next thing he did was picked up the violin the first song ever played on radio was oh holy night so in 1906 the revolution began. By introducing Christmas music on radio, and it was the first song ever played on radio. So three, actually four great wow. stories that have to do with a holy night. Yeah.
0: That's nuts. I mean, it's you know, it's a time and place, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I can only imagine when you're listening to those telegraph wires and you're listening for the bee and then all of a sudden you hear a voice. I mean, the power of that, you know, I mean the power of that moment. Had
1: to scare some people to death.
0: Oh, without question. Yeah. I mean, given what people did during the War of the Worlds broadcast, I can only imagine oh, yeah. what they would do I mean, they started hearing. Yeah, I mean, you know, if it wasn't for <laughs> Fessenden,
1: we wouldn't, had, it, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had Orson Welles doing War of the Worlds, and what a loss that would be. Right. I mean, and, and by the way, I love classic yeah. radio. I actually go over and talk about classic radio at university ca- campuses all the time. My fiction writing is paced like classic radio is, when, when you'll read my novels. Oh. And so Because That's I've great. learned how to write basically on that 1940s, 50s uh, radio type type storytelling ability but but you you look at these songs and and I understand by the way in in the 8 in 1960 61 62 when the Vietnam War was going so strong that when a man named Noel Mer- came from France to the United States and he he met a, a a woman named Gloria who was playing at a piano bar and they fell in love and got married even though they didn't speak English or French they had to work at communicating with each other and they became a songwriting crew and he was scared when he saw Vietnam that it was a repeat of, of, of what happened to him when he was in a concentration camp in World War II, and he actually wrote, "Do you hear what I hear?" And I understand that when that song came out, that people pulled off to the side of the road to hear it. It was such a powerful message, and, and, and that is something if you can actually write something that way. By the way, the guy, the guy's name was Noel. The woman's name was Gloria. Isn't it appropriate they wrote a lasting Christmas song with names like that? I mean, you know, you think know, about right? it. I know, right? I mean, yeah, uh, exactly. That seems kind of like a <laughs> right. match made in heaven there. Uh, I didn't get to interview him because he had had a Parkinson's disease and lost his voice, but I did get to interview her on...
0: On that, another secular song that I think is one of the most well. Before, well, before we step away from that one, that one's really interesting because Noel was forced into the Nazi army in World War II, and then and then left to you know to fight the to fight the resistance in France. I mean, he really had an ant- I mean, genuine anti-war sentiment because yeah, he was like right I mean, he, in the middle of it. it, and it doesn't surprise me that he would infuse that into his song.
1: Well, you know, and, and another another song that people miss the meaning of a great deal is the Great Willie Nelson song. And Willie Nelson actually wrote it, and Roy Orbison recorded it. We hear it all the time, pretty paper. You know, pretty paper, pretty ribbon, a blue, wrap your presents to your to the loved ones, I love you. It's an incredibly beautiful song, but people think it's a love song. If you listen to the verse, it's a song about a homeless guy. And people have never heard, listened to it closely enough to realize, Willie Nelson, when he wrote this, told me he was living on ketchup sandwiches because he was so poor. He Hmm. didn't have a car. He didn't have anything in Nashville writing music. And he saw this homeless guy on the street. It inspired him. And there's a line in that that song that says, should I stop? Better not much too busy. My inner, I'm in a hurry. My how time does fly. In the distance, the ringing of laughter, but in the midst of the laughter, he cries. It is the song about the plight of the poor. At Christmas. It is as powerful in many ways as Dickens' Christmas Carol. And yet we listen to it and
0: never hear what it means. Yeah, you know, I think that's an extraordinarily important point, Ace. Because one of the things I pride myself on is I listen to the lyrics of songs almost <laughs> to the annoyance of the people around me because it is fascinating when you actually hear the words being spoken and with the melody that it's combined with. At some time you know, a perfect example. Of this is the Foo Fighters did the song called "Everlong," and when you hear the rock version of it, you know, it's it's a it's a different meaning, different melody, but the lyrics are powerful. He did it. Um, um, David Grohl did it. Uh, you uh, on the Howard Stern show. He just did a, an acoustic version of it. And just, it, it, it emphasized the lyrics so much that it has become such a powerful song about a relationship that's breaking up. And, you know, it's it's that combination, right? It's that mixture of lyrics. You do have to listen to a lot of the words of these songs because it's a lot, you know, Noel was a, a classic, um, he was a classically trained, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he wanted to do classical music. You know, here's another one. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is great because that is, it's a poem. It's its a story that's telling you so much more. You, we can listen to the lyrics on, on one level, and people do, people recite it. But what it's telling you, what it's showing you, and what it meant is so much more powerful, not only when you know the backstory, but when you really listen to what's being said.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, Bob May wrote that story for his daughter Barbara. Barbara climbed up in his lap one night and broke his heart with these words, why can't my mommy be like all the other mommies in the world? And he looked over at his wife, Evelyn. They're in a lousy little two-room two, two room apartment in Chicago. It's right after Thanksgiving. They're poor. He's a copywriter for a department store. And, and he tries to show his daughter that Evelyn, who has cancer, he wants to get, eject some of his personality, her personality, and also his own personality into this lead character, personalities this daughter has never seen. She feels cheated. And he creates this character, Rudolph. And the next night, she asks for it again. And again, and so what he does is he he actually has no money for a Christmas present. He writes this book, he fleshes it out, does pictures with the book. And ultimately what happens is he gives it to her as a Christmas present. That's all he's got to give her. He doesn't have anything else but his talent. Well, people are coming by the house not to wish this family Merry Christmas, but because the wife has died of cancer after fighting it for, for years. And one of the guys who reads the book, when Evelyn hands it to him, He said, you got to read this at the company New Year's Eve party. He does. Montgomery Ward, the company at the time, big retailer since gone, uh, buys all rights to that book and the the drawings. And for the next seven or eight years, every child that sits in Santa's lap gets a copy of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Well, a major publisher comes to that company and said, hey, we want to take this story to the world. They give the rights back to Bob May. And Bob May, who has since remarried, you know, uh, finds himself with the biggest children's book in the country. In they not just the country, but the world. It's a monster hit. His new brother-in-law, Johnny Marks comes to him and says, let's write a song about it. They did being Crosby who had more Christmas hits than anybody else going back to Jingle Bells and other things and, and Silent Night and then White Christmas, I'll be home for Christmas uh, later, Silver Bells. And there's a great story behind that. But, um, He turned it down. Bob Hope, who was desperate for a Christmas hit because he wanted to challenge his best friend, friend Bing Crosby, looked at it and turned it down. Dinah Shore. Imagine this now. What Christmas does is makes you immortal if you're an artist. Dinah Shore had over 400 chart records. Nobody remembers Dinah Shore today as a singer. And yet, that's because she never had a Christmas hit. If she'd had a Christmas hit, we would know Dinah Shore. I mean, we remember Bing Crosby, Perry Como, and others because of Christmas hits. Well, she turned it down. Well, another singer-actor turned it down until his wife heard it and said, Gene Autry, you got to cut the song about the reindeer nobody will play with. And Gene, ultimately speaking, uh, recorded the second biggest Christmas song of all time. And Barbara, who is now much older, got to hear her mother's personality come to life in this wonderful little song about this misfit that finds its place in the world. And that's what we're all looking for as a place in the world. So yes, there's a great lesson behind it, but even the lesson behind the song is this. It was a gift given because this man could only give his talent, and yet that gift has come back magnified to that family time and time again. And that's ultimately what Love given at Christmas to someone else does. It comes back magnified to the giver time and time again. That may be the greatest, that may be the greatest lesson of all of Christmas. By the way, Johnny Marks also not only wrote Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, he wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Wow. And he wrote Holly Jolly Christmas. Whoa. And here is a little known fact of the top ten songs as of two years ago in the history of the top ten records in the history of Christmas music, top ten selling records, seven of those ten have been written by people who are Jewish. No kidding. Whoa. Yeah, and I asked one of my good friends who's Jewish about that. He told <laughs> that's me it's crazy. Why not? It's a Jewish guy's birthday. Right. <laughs>
0: that sounds like exactly yeah. That's a that's a perfect response. And so
1: yeah, but. um, you know that's one of those little inter- interesting stories behind the, the songs. As you look at that and you think, "Oh, Holy Night," music written by Jewish. By the way, the the, the most requested version of "A Holy Night" is written by, is, has been sung by Barbara Streisand. Wow! So she has. You know, you start... That's the other thing about Christmas. Well, here, before you get too far
0: away, I want to emphasize something on Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because there's a couple of things here. You glossed over them, but they are... This is how you know you're living in a different time and era, right? So this man writes this story. Um, You know, he sold it to, I believe it's Stephen Avery, I believe it was... uh, I'm Stuwell Avery, Stuwell Avery. Uh, He's the head of Montgomery Ward. So he sells it to him, you know, Mm -hmm. for a meager amount. Now, meanwhile, Bob um, has... He was, yeah, I think, he's got a, a college degree, but it's the depression. He can't really get a job. The yep. the cancer has drained his family's resources. Yep. So you know, Stuhl gets kind of a deal here on Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, but he does something which I think is unprecedented. And you even stick a point on this. Uh, you highlight it in the book, basically, um, is that the CEO of this gigantic retailer with a money printing story in his possession, legally owns it outright. There's nothing anyone can really do. He decides to give the rights back to the original owner and then makes him a millionaire. This would never happen today, which... It irritates me that we now have a system, and I'm not. This is I'm just going to mention this, then we'll move past it. We have a system in the United States where corporations are considered people for the for for political processes, and in no way would a corporation today, made up of people, do this very act that a person did back in the day without those exact same rights. This is huge. Once again, this story. When I
1: talk about the story on radio, there are so many layers you leave out. You brought that one up. But once again, the layer of, of having a gift, not having the money for a gift, and, and making something—that's yep. an important lesson for out of love. You got the got company that gives the rights back. You got all these people who rejected it because they didn't see the the value in it. And then ultimately speaking, a wife makes a guy record it. <laughs> By the way, it was it was also supposed to be a B side because yeah. the, the other side, the other side of that altary record is if it doesn't snow this Christmas. If you listened to it, it's brilliant. Nobody ever listens to it though, because it is a brilliant song. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's the B side now. I mean, that's <laughs>
1: that's the B side now. Yeah. But it, it was released as the as the A side, and it, you know, if it doesn't snow this Christmas, how is Santa going to deliver the presents? I mean, you know, that's, that's this is this kid's worried about this. It is a brilliantly written song, you know. <clears throat> and you look at that, and we talked earlier about all these different Christmas hits. How do they work? How do they make it? I think it's also point of view. You know, pretty paper. We're talking about pretty, Willie Nelson's point of view of the homeless. We look at uh, a Rudolph is a totally different point of view song. Uh, Mary, did you know? If you look at modern music, in, the, in from a modern Carol standpoint, Mark Lowry came up with the idea to write this this incredibly important hymn, if you will, uh, <clears throat> that has had such an effect on people because of he got to thinking, what would a re, if I was a reporter, what questions would I ask? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that gave him, that gave him that concept, and it's a brilliantly it's a written song. Yeah, you we, we talked about. Do you hear what I hear? Without Noel's point of view, that song wouldn't have been written. Um, you know, there's a the great Elvis Presley hit "Blue Christmas," which, by the way, when he recorded it, he did not want it to be a hit. That's why you hear that weird woo 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 in the background, as he said. If we put that in the background as the background vocal, because Elvis produced his own stuff, no matter what, Felton Jarvis or whoever was on the thing. When you study, I got to do the stories behind Elvis' number one songs. When you get studying him, he was a perfectionist in the studio and he produced his own stuff, you know, and, he, and everybody else just stood, stood back. I mean, like there's like 85 takes of most of his wow. songs. because He did not, he had to, it had to be perfect. If you listen to an Elvis song, uh, Don't Be Cruel, one of his, his biggest hit, you will actually hear, an out-of-tune out of, out of tune snare drum, that's him beating on the back of his guitar to get the people to do the rhythm right. I mean, you know, he just, <laughs> wow. that is in there on two or three of his songs. But I mean, going back to Elvis's Blue Christmas, he did that that woo thing, mm-hmm. thinking RCA would never release mm-hmm. it. And of course, that's what made it a hit. <laughs> his, you know, later, he re- yeah. wrote his favorite Christmas song, which is uh, which is brilliant. It was written by Red West, and it's um, uh, Why Can't Every Day Be Like Christmas. That's one of the greatest Christmas songs ever written. But Blue Christmas eclipsed it because it became iconic but you you look at blue christmas the guy who wrote that song was a jingle writer and he was he, he he was driving. This is after World War II. He was driving to work each and every day in a convertible. <laughs> and if it rained or snowed, he had to stick the umbrella through the roof holes in the roof to keep rain off his head. This guy <laughs> was a guy who was desperate. And with, as a jingle writer, he would naturally come up with, "Well, white Christmas is popular. Why don't we have a blue Christmas?" And he was kind of in a blue mood anyway. And so yeah. he he wrote this song. And and then it took ten years for Elvis. To find it, Elvis actually heard somebody else singing it and thought, well, that'd be kind of cool. It wasn't a big hit until Elvis got it. Hugo Wintergarden didn't have a big hit with it. Ernest Tubb had the country hit on it, and that's who Elvis heard singing it. And then Elvis did it, and it became his song. I said all that to say this. There are certain songs in Christmas music that are so associated with the individuals they can be recorded hundreds of times. But it's White Christmas is owned by Bing. Yeah, absolutely. Blue Christmas is owned by Elvis. Holly Jolly Christmas is owned by Burr Lives. You know, there, there are certain versions we hear that nobody else can equal them. They can cut them, but nobody wants to hear Deanna the de Belmont sing Blue Christmas. Their version is great. <laughs> or Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. Right, they don't, They yeah. want to hear that. They want to they hear Brenda Lee sing Rocking Around the Christmas Tree. And Brenda Lee cut that song when she was like 13 or 14 years old. I mean, that is just. Uh, And it's unbelievable that that she had cut that song that early in her career.
0: So I want to to close with one story because this fits exactly with what you're saying, which is, you know, it's kind of – some of these songs, they come out of these strange circumstances, this weird confluence of events that can really only exist in that space and time. And the Christmas song – It's called The Christmas Song, it's about Christmas, but it was written and recorded on the hottest day of the year in California, Uh, (laughs) as a basically, it was, I think, yeah, I'm giving a little preface here, I'm going to let you fill in the blanks here, but the person who wrote it, uh, they went over to record a song, and he was writing down cold thoughts because it was so hot, and Mel Torme saw this list of random cold thoughts and decided, this is a song, we got to put this together
1: when Robert Wells and Mel Torme were writing together, they were a writing team. And and, and they, it was that hot day. They were drinking lemonade um, and sitting out by the pool, trying to write music for a Broadway, excuse me, a Hollywood movie they were supposed to be writing music for and couldn't come up with anything because it was too, it was literally too hot to think. And I, I think the interesting thing about it is this guy was from New England, so was Torme. He started jotting down, things and talking about things that made him feel cold. What Torme did was look at what this guy was writing. Jack Frost nipping at your nose, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, snow. And he thought, we're writing a song. And they sat down within about 10 minutes and wrote the Christmas song. You'll t- you know, you, you, everybody calls it all these different things, but it's legally titled the Christmas mm. song. Right. <laughs> well, Wells, this is 1946. And Wells is saying, let's run it over to Bing Crosby. We got Bing's next hit. And Mel Torme said, no, no, let's take it to my friend Nat King Cole. And Wells is going, they don't play Nat King Cole music in lots of different parts of this country because he's black. So we don't want to give it to him. Well, once again, Torme must have had something on this, on Wells, because they took it. They ignored (laughs) Crosby and they took it to Nat King Cole. Cole listened to it and knew that Crosby was looking for another Christmas song. And he went into the studio and recorded it that summer. Yeah,
0: right. <laughs> he
1: didn't yeah. wait because he wanted to make sure, sure. he get it. And ironically enough, when it came out, there were stations all over the South that got so many requests for it that they had to play it. And long before Rosa Parks and a year or two before Jackie Robinson, Nat King Cole broke the Christmas color mm, line. Wow. Now wow. think about that by singing White Christmas, he broke the color line at Christmas because we had had black uh, spirituals that were sung by white choirs. We had uh, had all these other things, but we didn't have an African-American hit at Christmas until Nat King Cole, ironically enough, with Caroling, caroling and all these other hits he had that followed that, he became probably second only to Bing Crosby for the amount of material he produced that was accepted and sold at Christmas. But Nat King Cole thanks to Mel Torme, by the way, Mel Torme was Jewish, and you had Mel Torme and you had Nat King Cole doing something that was very unique, and Torme's faith, and obviously Torme's lack of prejudice, opened the door to break the color line at Christmas, and we owe him a great deal. A side note on this, it's kind of funny, Bing was looking for another hit, and Bob Hope, a few years later, was in a movie, The Lemon Drop Kid, and they had written in this movie because it was set at Christmas time a song called "Silver Bells." Mm, okay. And Crosby and, and I think it was Marilyn Maxwell sang it as a duet in the movie. I'd have to go back and check who the actress was for sure. Uh, but um, and Bing and Bob thought I finally got my Christmas hit. But the movie was was released in the summertime, <laughs> and he didn't bother he didn't bother going to the studio and recording it. Bing went right into the studio and recorded his best friend's movie song and had the hit on it. And Bob Hope lost that song wow. as well to being. <laughs> wow. And so Bob never had a Christmas hit. He had all these specials, but never had his own Christmas hit, even though this was his song in his movie. Interesting thought about that song there. People get asked me all the time about uh, stoplights b- blinking bright red and gl- green. This would have been written before there was a yellow caution light on stoplights. Oh,
0: lights. Interesting. Okay.
1: And so they would have only had two colors. Another thing, if you go back to something we talked about earlier, I'll be home for Christmas, the line on the thing that confuses people and presents on the trees. There was a tradition to tie presents onto trees back then, not put them under the tree. Of course, presents were much smaller. Then they invented the electric train, and you couldn't do that anymore, <laughs> I guess. But they, they, they actually tied presents on the trees. The origin, Remember the uh, animal cracker boxes? Yeah, of course. The string on them? Uh The string was so you hung them on the tree and the kids got to take the cookies down at Christmas and eat them. Oh, that's a great idea.
0: That's a great. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, hold on. I, I'm still stuck on this Bob Hope thing. I mean, Bob Hope's you know notoriously yeah. nice guy. I mean, now he's got an airport named <laughs> after him in Burbank, which is you know he may have won that war. But how could he? I mean, I know Bing Crosby was powerful. How could there not be any repercussions? Were these guys friends? I mean, were they friends after this? This is. They were great friends and great rivals on the golf course and everything else.
1: I don't know what the rep. I don't know what the something. repercussions were of that. But Bing, literally speaking, stole white, silver bells right out from underneath Bob. So Bob passed on Rudolph <laughs> and then, then got Silver Bells, you know, just the, the the rug yanked out from underneath him on that. That was just, you know, and there's so many things we didn't get to talk about. Like the first stereo, re- the first electronic recording was, uh, Oh, Come All You Faithful by the American Glee Club back in, back in your late twenties. And, 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 and Eddie Cantor's great song. And, and Bob and, and Gene Autry wrote, He came back from World War II thinking everybody had forgotten him, and he was rode in the Hollywood Christmas parade, and all these kids were screaming at him, and he was thinking, I haven't been forgotten. And then halfway through the parade, he looked behind him and realized Santa Claus was riding behind him, and they weren't the least bit interested in him. They were screaming at Santa Claus they had forgotten him. (laughs) But he turned around, and and that gave him the inspiration to write his hit before Rudolph – which was Santa Claus
0: is coming to town. Right. That's a great story. I mean, that's a really fun story with with, with the parade. Uh, this little kid is talking about Santa Claus, and he thinks, you know, he's riding the town. I mean, what, you know, what a reality check. And I got to tell you, Gene Autry, he's got a great museum here in Los Angeles. The Gene Autry Museum is just a, an amazing Western uh, Western museum. But, I mean, you know, he took it in stride, and he wrote a book about it. I mean, instead of, you know, a lot of people now would get butthurt, take the social media, and, you know. Uh, yeah, but, no, right. he didn't. He, he went with it. He laughed. I have to rolled with it, and then it's like I'm going to use this to my advantage. Then wrote a song about Santa. I mean, that's the... making limp, lemonade <laughs> exactly. out of lemons. I mean, there's no doubt about Roll that. With I
1: it. Mean, and, you know, and you know that's one of the great things. Uh, there are so many of these hits that are accidental hits and stuff like that. Like, you know, we can we can you know as you, as you said we need to wrap it up, but we can talk about Silent Night, which I think is a, is an appropriate place to end because Silent Night was written by a, a priest who was in a panic, and it wasn't actually written that night. That's 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 a legend, but. He got to the church. He's preparing his first mass ever. He's a young guy. His name is Moore. And Father Moore goes to the church, and the organ won't uh, work. Now, the legends, separating legend from fact sure. is interesting. People say, you know, my safe, the bellows, all this stuff. No, it was an uh, old organ. It had been going out for years. It finally just gave up the ghost.
0: Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story, Ace.
1: No, no, no. He, <laughs> r- he runs over to his friend, Franz Gruber, who's a schoolteacher, and Gruber says, I can play the guitar for your music. He said, no, no, the songs I picked out, you can't play guitar with them. They have to have an organ. Then Gruber said, well, let, we'll write something. And that is when Moore realized he had written a poem two years before when he was visiting an uncle on Christmas Eve. And he goes back and finds what he had written. Now, how many of us could find something we had written two years before? He did. I don't know how how he did it, but he found it. They wrote music for it, and it became the the song that saved the Christmas Eve Mass in 1818, 18, uh, 18, wow. I believe it was, in Obendorf, Germany, wow. Obendorf Austria, Obendorf Austria. Well, he didn't think much about it. Three or four weeks later, a guy came by to fix the organ. You know, traveling organ sure. repairman. They had those you know, back then. Yeah. And, and the guy said, "What'd you what'd you do at Christmas?" And and he picked up the guitar and played the song for him. Well, the guy copied down the lyrics, and and copied down the music. Well, 30 years later, this priest, who's pretty much forgotten about this song, sure. to got Christmas. I, you know,
0: Bing Crosby, Bob Hope story coming up here, I think, I feel like.
1: He's walking along a street in Germany, and yep. hears his song coming from a cathedral. <laughs> and he goes in and finds out, how did you learn this? And found out that the guy who fixed the organ had been the Johnny Appleseed of Silent Night and taken it and taught it everywhere wow. he went. It was even in America wow. by that time. And Silent Night, by the way, has been re- has been sung more than any other Christmas song. And And, you know, White Christmas and... And and Rudolph and others are bigger hits, but this has been sung more than any other Christmas song. Interesting thing about this song is that this song, which was just a stop get measure, where is the first place it was ever sung? The name of the church was Saint Nicholas. Whoa. Wow,
0: that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and that's, I love that. And so yeah. This is what happened. I mean, this is what happens with. So, I mean, this is a viral hit, Ace. I mean, this is exactly the definition of a viral hit. Um, some people would call it this thievery, gimmick infringement, but I guess we'll call it a viral hit that brought brought us, oh, uh, silent or silent night. Um, and speaking of viral hits, you know, you've got a lot of viral hits. This isn't, you know, you write. Obviously, you write books on Christmas traditions and Christmas songs, but this isn't the only thing you've you've written. Hundred books. What's your latest book? How can people find that? How can people find you? And how can people find more about? their favorite Christmas song?
1: Probably the best and most efficient way to link up with me is just go to Ace Collins, and I think I've actually got my name Andrew in it too, Ace Andrew Collins on uh, in, um, on Facebook, so they can link up with me there. I've got an author page that one of my publishers helps run, and, and, and so we've got that. I have just sold a book called The Last Imprint that will be out uh, this coming year. My latest novel is Black or White. Probably my best and most awarded book ever is The Color of Justice, which deals with racial strife in the South in the 1960s. It's a novel, but it, there's some real, very real elements in it. Uh, and you can find out more about me at acecollins.com or find a lot of my hundred books at Amazon. Uh, I, I have a—for those of you who are listening who are who are Christian and who are men, and we talked talked about classic cars to begin with, I had a company come to me and ask me to write a devotional book. Hmm. Around classic cars, so we've got geared-up faith that comes out for Father's Day next year, and it, it's a fun book that looks at Duesenberg's and everything else, and and kind of kind of says, okay, what can you do? You know, how did this story relate to your faith? And so there's so many different ways that you can do that, but but what it ultimately amounts to is I get to do what I love to do for a living, and I've gotten to do what I love for a living for more than three decades. And it's a joy, and there's no expiration date on this, so I can continue to do it. And it is it is just wonderful to be – I am doing – somebody asked me once, did you learn how to do this in college? No. Nah. I learned how to do this because my grandparents were so – used to sit on the front porch when I was a little kid and tell stories. All I'm doing is the same thing my grandparents did. I'm just doing it to book format. They did it orally on the front porch.
0: I'm a storyteller. Wow, I I I love that. And you know, the last imprint you said this is your your best work. You mentioned uh, the Dusseldorf. There's a museum out here called the Nethercut, which has a beautiful Dusseldorf. They also have Wurlitzer um, orchestras. And to, to put a, uh, a little button on the whole thing, they also have the largest Wurlitzer um, organ. Uh, it's Not similar to the one that the priest uh, that was broken that that spawned a Silent Night. Um, but that is a place that, you know, they've got lots of stuff. I think you would love it if you ever came out here. You should check it out. Lots of stuff that both ties into you and... I, can't, I Well, I, I get it. I have a son who's in Hollywood, so I do get out there from
1: time to time. Looking forward to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You need to hit it up, the Nethercut Museum. Well, Ace, thank you so much for everything, and thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, had a blast, Daniel. Let's do this again sometime. So I want to thank you for being on the show, and thank you to everyone for listening. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, joyous Festivus, um, hooray for Hanukkah, and Happy New Year. So thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next year. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns Introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Buddy and Toes with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Buddy and Toes. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, never fear. We got you covered. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every place you can locate us and find one that fits your lifestyle. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go because it is also there that you can find the show on YouTube. Yes, we have a live video version of the podcast now on YouTube. YouTube YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn is where you find it. And that is not the only place where you can find the show on social media. We got links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, pinterest youtube and of course instagram right there fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening end of transmission